You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Doug Stokes and Greg Stokes, and this is the Lanyap Podcast, a Stokes Family Office production. This is our first podcast, and it is nearing the end of the year 2021. And at this time of the year, if you follow markets at all, what you'll notice is two things. You'll notice a lot of expert forecasts coming out, and you'll also notice this is right after Christmas. So you may have noticed this during Christmas time that a lot of family members are asking you what the markets are going to do next year. So I thought we'd bring back a really great article from Morgan Housel, uh, read an excerpt from it, and then discuss. So here I go. It says... This is embarrassing. There are 22 chief market strategists at Wall Street's biggest banks and investment firms. They work at storied firms such as Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. They have access to the best information, the smartest economists, and a team of brilliant analysts. They talk to the largest investors in the world. They work hard, and they are paid lots of money. One of their more important and certainly highest profile jobs is forecasting what the stock market will do over the next year. Strategists do this every January by predicting where the S&P 500 will close on December 31st. You won't be shocked to learn that their track record isn't perfect, but you might be surprised how disastrously bad it is. I certainly was. On average, chief market strategist forecasts are worse than those made by a guy I call the blind forecaster. He's a brainless idiot who assumes the market goes up 9%, its long-term historic average, every year, regardless of circumstances. So I'm going to jump to another point of this, but I want to make note that what Morgan Housel is saying is that if you just pick 9% as the target as a return that year, you're better than the average high-paid chief market strategist at the Wall Street banks. And the reason for this is he says, if you think of finance being akin to physics when it's actually closer to sociology, forecasting becomes a nightmare. The most important thing to know to accurately forecast future stock prices is what mood investors will be in in the future. Will people be optimistic and willing to pay a high price for stocks? Or will they be bummed out, panicked about some crisis, pissed off at politicians and not willing to pay much for stocks? You have to know that. It's the most important variable when predicting future stock returns, and it's unknowable. There's no way to predict what mood I'll be in 12 months from now, because no matter what you measure today, I can ignore it a year from now. That's why strategists have such a bad record, worse than a blind forecaster. So that was written in 2015. And what Morgan went through then is very true today. How many people predicted in 2020 that we would have a COVID lockdown, the worst drawdown in stocks, and the quickest drawdown in stocks ever, and one of the worst since 1929. And then now we're going through a period in which people are worried about other things like inflation and what is the Federal Reserve going to do related to inflation. The short answer is nobody knows and forecasts are useless, but we can't have a podcast just around nobody knows, so we have to talk about something. So, Greg, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, there's a famous quote from Warren Buffett that says, forecasts usually tell more about the forecaster than the forecast. And I think that's a very true statement. 
Um, something that we Doug and I previously spoke with Morgan Hazel during 2020, and that particular interview is available on YouTube for those of you who want to who want to look at it more closely. Morgan Hazel's the uh, gentleman that wrote the article that Doug just read. Something that Morgan told us during that particular interview was that forecasts are useless, like Doug said, which is self-evident because nobody knows what's going to happen at any given point in time. But in terms of what you should look for from a market expectation standpoint, uh, you the world typically breaks about once every 10 years. And if you have that sort of expectation that we're going to run into a difficult period every decade, then that's a reasonable way to look at the future. But from a year-to-year basis, forecasting is really kind of like a fool's errand because nobody truly knows what's going to happen. And it really does necessarily define the person who is making the forecast rather than what is going to happen any given year. Yeah. So with all of that aside and with the understanding that we don't know anything, I do want to talk about a couple forecasts or expectations and just for fun, what we're thinking of two major themes that are playing out right now. And it is about year-end 2021. Major theme number one is the Omicron variant of COVID. And major theme number two is inflation and inflation's impact on economic growth, fixed income, on stocks, on basically every asset class. So first, I have a little bit of a horse voice, and I don't know if that's Omicron or not. I've tested negative, but let's talk that first. What are we seeing and thinking about Omicron, and what are your expectations for how this plays out, Greg? So about six weeks ago, I think it was the weekend after Thanksgiving, the news about Omicron really started to hit the media. And at the time, it caused a lot of angst in the markets the following Monday, I believe, or it was actually, I think, Black Friday when the news broke. The market sold off in a significant way, and it caused a lot of angst amongst our client body as well, too, because we think that might have opened some wounds as it relates to the the pandemic from a psychological standpoint, or was very reminiscent of that. What's happened over the course of the last five or six weeks, though, is that the data has indicated that the Omicron variant is much more contagious than any of the previous COVID-related variants, but the mortality statistics are are a fraction of what they were previously. So, for example, in South Africa, where uh, Omicron originated, at the same point in the Omicron is relative to the Delta wave, fatalities are essentially like 9% of what they were in the Delta wave. So things are looking, and the same statistics bear themselves out in Europe as well, too. So very infectious, but not deadly as of now. And it's my hope that this particular variant is going to parallel what took place with the Spanish flu in the 19, the late 19-teens, where essentially the, 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 the deadliest wave occurred on in the first wave and then a less deadly variant emerged that essentially ended the pandemic and be, it, essentially the Spanish flu became a part of the normal flu that we get every year. I hope that that's the case. I think there's two pieces of logic that are behind that. Number one is the data around previous diseases in that all the virus wants to do is 
transmit to more and more people, the more deadly it is, the less transmissible it can be because as it hits more people, those people are dying and not transmitting the virus. So that's thought process number one. Thought process number two is that with Omicron or any other variant that is to come, people have been exposed one way or another to COVID, whether it's through vaccine or through infection with alpha, beta, delta, and now Omicron, and then obviously the vaccines. So there is some memory that your immune system has that basically allows you to fight off the disease, not become a fight off infection, but at least fight off severity. And so I think those are two things that are at play. One, obviously not a scientist or an epidemiologist by any means, just have done some reading, I think. But I think the two pieces of logic are the disease wants to transmit more, trans, be more transmissible. Therefore, by virtue of that, will need to become less deadly. And number two, almost everybody on the planet in some form or fashion has been exposed to this virus and the immune systems are probably getting stronger and stronger and better able to recognize. My beliefs are becoming more crystallized that this is something that is, at least for this particular variant, and I hope this continues in the future, obviously, becoming less deadly. On a governmental standpoint, right now you have to test negative to go into a lot of countries, test negative to come back in the United States. That's obviously a failure. There's, you can't, there's no stopping this, essentially. This Omicron variant is a prime example. When does that policy change, number one? And number two, the thing that's impacting us right now is the NFL. When does that, when do those yeah. policies change? Because it seems like it's, it's something you really can't stop. I think even before that, I think we, a more pressing question is we, we need to get on the same page as to whether it's Omicron or Omicron as the name of the variant. So what are we going with? I don't know. It's all Greek to me. It is. That's right. So, well, I think the NFL piece is really killing us because the Saints play tonight and they're down 20, 24, 20 players and four coaches and we're in the playoff hunt. And that's a big deal for us down here in New Orleans. But I mean, that's the million dollar question is not only just policymakers around mandates. And I think it's this has been such a shock to society, especially a society that's been used to general comfort throughout life. I think if this would have happened 100 or 200 years ago, people would have just dealt with it and moved on. But now we're basically protected from most dangers in the world in modern society. And so having a an uncontrollable danger like this is a complete shock to the system. And I think it's going to take time to come out of it. And I'm hopeful sooner rather than later. And just as a somebody that's interested in getting back to pre-2020 life, definitely hopeful for that. Again, nobody knows what's going to happen in the future, obviously, but it seems to me at least that we're headed in that direction, at least. I think it's incremental. It's baby steps. If we get through Omicron without issues, and then if there's a lack of another variant or a similar and less severe variant, and we have a vaccine regimen that can cover all variants, which they're talking about now, then I think we can move on from this as a society. And then as it relates to not just you know, whether it's quarantine or mandates or testing. The other thing is related to like, you know, fiscal or monetary policy from a, a government support standpoint on a, the pandemic relief. And I, I think that's been basically been settled with the inability, it's seemingly inability to pass the Build Back Better plan with 
with Joe Manchin in West Virginia coming out publicly and stating that he would not vote yes for the proposal. And from the Federal Reserve just basically forecasting that they're going to have to aggressively taper bond purchases and raise interest rates starting 2022. So I think we're from a fiscal and monetary policy perspective, we're on that path to recovery. And now it's just the society, the psychological impact of COVID and moving beyond that. And that's going to take some time. Yeah. And this echoes back to what we were talking about at the outset of the podcast in that it's impossible to forecast what's going to happen in the future. And realistically, and we were in the trenches dealing with with uh, human psychology and individuals that were dealing with some very stressful situations in, in terms of March of 2020. But it, nobody could have forecast, number one, that we were going to run into, uh, we were going to have a, like a, a, a pandemic. And then secondarily, nobody could have forecast that things would be, from an economic standpoint, so rosy right now. And that we're having to talk about the fact that there's inflation that's on you know, a year-over-year basis growing at 7%, that like fiscal policy is trending towards not putting additional money in the system because the economy is so hot. And same thing with the, the monetary policy and the Fed saying that they're going to slow down any sort of stimulative activity because the economy is running so hot. So it's really impossible to forecast. And that's a case in point what was going on then. And obviously looking on March 23rd or March 22nd or whenever the market bottomed and had fallen 35% in a matter of weeks, where we are today, it's truly impossible to forecast where we are now and where we would, where, what we had been through. I think we're on the same page with Omicron as to what our expectations are for the disease. Hopefully it follows a similar path that what's occurring in South Africa and the United Kingdom. And so hopefully a month from now we're sitting here and we're on the back end of this and it looks like it's just going to be pretty rough in the interim. The big question, other than what are markets going to do in 2022, that's question number one that we receive from clients. And it's very difficult to say that nobody knows the answer to that. We take a viewpoint on a longer time horizon, and we may get to that on another podcast. But I do want to talk about expectations for inflation. Inflation has been printing at about 7% the last two months on an annualized basis. Federal Reserve came out in November and then again in December that they're going to be accelerating the tapering of bond purchases. And basically, what that means is the liquidity injection into the system by the Federal Reserve via an asset swap. We're going to have an economist on it as a guest to describe that in more detail. But at a very high level, it's just a liquidity injection into the economy. And then the other piece is that they came out and said they didn't expect to raise rates throughout all of 22 earlier in the year. And now they're expecting maybe three up to four interest rate heights next year. So it looks like their forecast was originally incorrect. Where are you seeing or what are your expectations for inflation and and maybe short term and long term? So like we talked about at the outset, forecasting is impossible, and but it doesn't make it less fun. The reality is that no one really knows, but what, there's a common saying in our business, the market knows everything, which in market markets are really efficient, efficient, so they take in information, and then that, that's really the best source of information that we have, in my opinion. So 
as it relates to what the market is saying from a inflationary standpoint, the bond market is our best guide in that regards. And so, for example, from a, the the ten year Treasury yield now is around one and a half percent. So, what that's telling me, and the market's telling me, is that obviously the inflation is high right now, but the market interprets from a long term standpoint that that's going to normalize. And you and I have previously talked about this that there are a lot of factors in the world that take that into account and that are in favor of a disinflationary environment, like, for example technology, the fact that we have a population that's aging, et cetera, that those factors are long-term deflationary trends. As far as other forecasts that I think are going to take place, but again, like nobody knows, and all of this is useless, but here's my, my shot in terms of what is going to take place in 2022 beyond what the market's telling me on the bond side of the equation. I think personally that if you look back, and this is just looking at statistics from a stock side of the equation, we're going to get a correction. Do you think that's a legitimate expectation, Doug? So I'm going to take a stab at inflation, and then I'll I'll jump into that. So I think you're absolutely correct, for my opinion, that there are two factors at play in inflation. One is short-term and one is long-term. Short-term factor is that the world shut down. Part of the world is still shut down. But at the same time, as demand started basically immediately increase as soon as the world, some of the world opened back up, it takes a little bit longer for the supply side to open back up to meet that demand. So, you know, manufacturing delays, supply chain issues, et cetera. And so there's a supply demand mismatch in that there's less supply and more demand. And then at the same time, savings rates in COVID were really high. So people are starting to spend now as they're coming out of their holes. And so I think that is obviously short-term inflationary that basically supply went out the door and demand came back much quicker. Long-term, the metrics haven't changed. We've got globalization, technology changes, aging populations all around the world. And so all of those impacts are disinflationary. So I think that that will ultimately win the day. Markets, yeah, volatility in markets. I, th- I think there's a really great study. I think American Funds puts it out. Is that right, Greg? Every year. And now my call for a correction was a little bit tongue in cheek because you see these, you see market pundits calling for a correction like it's some um, abnormal thing. And that's really what my tongue in cheek assertion that there was going to be a correction this year was that. There's typically a correction every year. Yeah. And then what do you define as a correction? So let's, this is American Funds Capital Group, which is the parent company of American Funds, puts this research out every year. Size of the decline, this is the S&P 500 over the last, what is that, 70 years, 70 years, 1949 to 2020. Size of the decline, 5% or more, then goes negative 10%, negative 15% negative 20%. And then the frequency of each one of those declines. So negative 5% or more happens about three times per year. No big deal. I think we've had a couple 5% dips this year. Negative 10% correction. I don't know if we got there this year. Happens about once per year. So last occurrence was February of 2020. I think we got close to it in September maybe of this year. 
negative 15% dip once every three and a half years. Uh, so the last time that occurred was February of 2020. And then a 20% dip or more, which is considered a bear market, happens about once every six years. So if somebody asks that question, we generally reply with this data, although people want more of a prediction and less data when they're asking the question, but this is, the, this is what we use. But uh, I think this goes back to what Morgan Housel said is, is that if you expect the world to blow up about once or twice every decade, then you can at least plan around that. You don't know when it's going to happen, but just think, well, once or twice every decade, I'm going to have a market blow up, which we'll consider a, a bear market, 20% drawdown or more. On average, that's about right. Once every six years, the market drops 20% or more. Last time was February of 2020. Prior to that, it was December of 2018. And then prior to that, I think it was 2011. But just expect it. And you know, part of long-term market returns is dealing with corrections and not doing anything about it. So you have to, be, you have to take the bad with the good. Right. That's what the price of admission is for getting over that period of time from 1949 till present. I'm sure the market's compounded out at close to 9 or 10 percent per year. So if the only way that you're going to be able to return that sort of annualized rate of return, 9 or 10 percent over that period of time, is by dealing with the variability and volatility in the markets. And that's, so that's really what the price of admission for getting those types of returns has been historically. It's really interesting from a when you hear that there's a market commentator that says oh, there's going to be a 10% correction this year. Is that realistically, there's a statistical likelihood that there is going to be a 10% correction any given year, at least. Yeah. I mean, I think the scarier thing is not necessarily the stock portion. I think the scarier thing is is that the 10-year treasury is at 1.5%. And so you know, from an investor, or let's say somebody that can't really handle, psychologically handle the volatility of stock market returns. The other option, and you can go into private markets, and we may discuss that at a later podcast, but just generally speaking, your options are stocks or bonds, right, uh, as, a, as an investor. And so if you can't take the 10% or maybe even 20% correction in stocks, because it's going to happen statistically once every year, 10%, once every six years at 20%, then What's your alternative? I mean, you have to accept a one and a half percent ten-year Treasury rate, maybe two and a half percent to three percent in investment-grade corporates over the same time frame. So, you either have to accept the volatility, or you have to accept lower rates of return, or you have to save more, or you have to spend less coming into retirement. Now, there's things we we can do from an allocation perspective that are, are beyond the scope of maybe this particular episode. And, and we may get into that with guests at a later date, but I don't think, you know, people don't like to hear that, but I think that that's probably the logical answer is somebody that says that gets nervous about volatility. It's, you know, how much can you handle and what can you afford to take off the table? Right. And nobody knows what returns are going to be going forward, but I think that it's, and this is, not a forecast. I think this is more of a, a fact that markets are going to be variable prospectively. So that's a very good point that if you're not willing to accept that aspect of it, then you've got to be willing to save more or do a number of other things that you just mentioned. Yeah. I think the scariest piece about that is you see the 10-year treasury and then you see these inflation prints of, of 7%, as we talked about earlier, maybe a little bit less than that. But I think the scary thing for me, 
you're talking to a, somebody that's a fixed income investor is basically saying that, yes, inflation seven percent, and your yield on your bond is two percent, and that's a, that's just a massive negative real return. Now, hopefully, inflation comes down, and the bond market's correct, but that's the biggest issue in my mind in conversations today is basically having 40% of your portfolio that's in bonds, earning a negative real return, and basically having the stocks make up for everything. Right. I think that's something that I can tell has been on a lot of people's minds lately. And there's really not a whole lot you can do about it from a fixed income perspectives, in fixed income investors perspective, given the fact that fixed income rates are so low and inflation has been so high. So it'll be interesting to see how if inflation is persistent, then that should necessarily mean that bond yields creep up. And that'll at least give some credence to or give some real return on a fixed income side of equation. But right now it's it's a negative real return or negative net of inflation. And that's especially true, obviously, if you hold a lot of cash. Yeah. So we're coming up on about 30 minutes in the podcast. We're trying to keep these episodes to around 30 minutes in length, although we have no set limit. I want to wrap up with a forecasting question. The Saints play the Dolphins tonight. So what is your forecast for how the season pans out related to the Saints? And then before we get to that, I just want to thank this is this will be our first episode. So anybody listening to this out there, uh, thank you for listening. Please like, uh, comment and continue to listen more. Please share with friends. We're going to be doing this on a weekly basis. So uh, thank you for listening to Lanyap, which basically means a little extra that comes from Greg and Doug Stokes of Stokes Family Office. So Greg, forecasts for the remainder of the Saints season. So my favorite resources from a statistical probability standpoint for NFL football are 538, which is a website that was run by Nate Silver. And also the New York Times publishes football predictions as well, too. And they're interactive from the standpoint that you can choose if x team wins this game what's their probability of making it to the playoffs and then likewise if another matchup outside of your specific matchup outside of the saints dolphins how does that impact the percentage likelihood of the saints making the playoffs and so according to 538 right now the saints have like a 52 percent chance of making the playoffs and that increases to like 70 percent if the Saints beat the Dolphins, but realistically, the Saints have to win. The more important games are the final two games of the season because their divisional games are obviously NFC games as well, too, whereas the Dolphins are, is, are an AFC game. And the New York Times is pretty similar from a statistical standpoint. I think those are reasonable odds. I personally think, like right now, the Saints obviously are down like 24 players because of COVID. And I think that is obviously going to have an impact on the game. And the betting lines have been indicative of that accordingly. I don't like to bet on football, but I like to look at the lines just to see what the market is perceiving, what's going on with the Saints. So the Saints are like a three-point underdog. They were like a slight favorite before all the COVID outbreak. I, I think the Saints are going to pull it off tonight. By the time this episode publishes, we'll see. And then I think it's going to be like a coin toss at whether or not we can win the last couple of games of the season and get in the playoffs. But again, I, I really don't know. I have a good feeling about this game, but I'm, I'm less, I have less of a good feeling about the subsequent two games and getting in the playoffs, but we'll see. I'm hopeful. I think, I mean, this game is important. I think we need to win out to make it. Our only chance of making it without winning out would be to lose this game and to win the next two games. So, so we'll see. 
I'm in the same boat. I, for some reason, the Saints generally play well when their backs are against the wall, and I, I think that this is this is about as big as it gets for, in terms of you know, negative impact from COVID or any other outside resource during a week leading up to the game. So I'm hopeful that past equals the future. I'm hopeful the Saints make the playoffs because it's fun to watch and it's fun to come out of COVID and actually have something great to root for. But anyway, I think we're going to leave it at that. We'll be back next week and please share with your friends. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.